1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined again by my friend, Richard LaDuke. Hello. And today, I wanted to talk about probably one of the most important revelations that Joseph Smith ever received. Now, that's actually, that's a pretty hard sentence for me to say. Uh, Joseph Smith received so many revelations, and he taught so many incredible truths, that trying to pick out which ones are the, quote, most important, quote, is, you know, it's like it's it's almost like sophie's choice i'm trying to decide which of these is the most important and and in truth you know so much light and knowledge is restored to the earth through the prophet that we could we could pick all kinds of we could find you know amazing truths in all of them so the, the revelation i'm thinking about though could e- most easily be described to you if we were imagine okay i want you to imagine that we're all sitting in a, in, in a classroom and someone comes into the room to teach us a lesson And they walk up to the chalkboard and they draw a single circle on the board. No labels, no no announcement of what they're about to teach because uh, it's so often taught this way as Latter-day Saints. You are already going to the idea. Oh, yeah, plan of salvation. We're gonna be talking about the plan of salvation. I mean, you draw circles. If you're talking about, you know, if it's it's celestial, it's celestial, it's terrestrial. I mean, because it's 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 if we we draw about the afterlife in circles. Oh, there's the premortal life circle. And and what I mean by that is this doctrine is is probably one of the most well-known in the church. You can find uh Latter-day Saints who, you know, are are, are not you know, particularly educated, who don't attend church very often or if at all, and and they will likely know that there's a celestial kingdom, a terrestrial kingdom, and a celestial kingdom. They, they may not know exactly what, what each one is, but they will know that those kingdoms exist. And uh, all of that stems from the the revelation that we now call Doctrine and Covenant section 76, but it had a different name in Joseph Smith's time. Uh, in Joseph Smith's time, it's it's very interesting. You can tell how important this revelation was because it had its own name. When almost everyone referred to it, they referred to it as the vision. Um, that was its title, the vision. And, and in fact, whenever you're reading a 19th century, you know, if you're reading a, a talk from George A. Smith in the 1860s, if you're if you're reading a 19th century document and they refer to Joseph Smith's vision. They are almost never referring to Joseph Smith's first vision. Now, that that actually sometimes causes people a great deal of consternation. Well, well why, why wouldn't they be talking about the first vision? I mean, they, that, that's what they should be talking about. But the reality is, we uh, focus on the first vision a lot because we we're, we're pretty far removed from those events. We talk about the restoration of the gospel, and in talking about the restoration of the gospel— It's a very natural question to say, when did this all start? When did we start getting to to a restoration? And so Joseph Smith's first vision is when God first spoke to us again. Now, in 1835, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, and someone says, well, how do you know that that John Smith guy's a prophet? Actually, his name's Joseph. All right, how do you know that Joseph Smith guy's a prophet? I don't know that the guy you're talking to is drunk. Maybe he is before the you know word of wisdom being enforced anyways what difference does it make but um it, you would say well you wouldn't say well well Joseph Smith you know 15 years ago had a vision where he saw Jesus because instead you'd say you know like last week Joseph Smith saw Jesus again you know I, I, Joseph has multiple encounters with the divine and in, in many ways doctrine and Covenant section 76 the vision is an experience that is it it has all of the power of Joseph Smith's first vision. Only it expansively declares doctrine and truth to the world. the 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 truths that Joseph learned in the first vision are powerful and important. But in in the vision that he receives in 1832, in in the vision, um, as it was called. He is going to, as Wilfred Woodruff will say, we'll, well, you're gonna they're gonna learn more through that than they could through any other thing. That it's it's a key aspect of who we are as Latter-day Saints. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time on it. Again, you could teach an entire college course. You could you could sign up for, oh, what are you taking? I'm taking Book of Mormon. What are you taking? I'm taking Old Testament. What are you taking? I'm taking DNC seventy six. You mean the whole doctrine of covenants no i'm just taking dnc 76 you could spend the entire semester on it because it's so expansive and so important and so i'm not going to spend as much time on the the more well-known aspects of it because we already established if i was drawing a circle here everybody you know you'd already tuned this out you've probably already tuned it out but for those of you who are still there i'm going to draw a second circle and um it, i'm going to focus more on some of the what I would call the radical aspects of this doctrine. Now Latter-day Saints very rarely think of themselves as radicals. I would guess that most of the time we think of ourselves as being, you know, pretty straight laced and, you know, my goodness, you know, we 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 don't drink and we don't smoke and we, you know, we 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 try to keep to ourselves and things like that. But well in in the terms of theology, in terms of Christian theology, doctrine comes in section 76 is is among the most radical things that Joseph Smith is going to teach, because it is so at variance with the rest of the Christian world. And in fact, that, that radical nature of it, to you and I, is beautiful. But to other people, to other Christians, they find it to be blasphemous. And so we're going to talk all about that right here. So many, many Latter-day Saints know that the, the vision that Joseph Smith received, DNC 76, that it uh, originated from questions that Joseph and and Sidney were discussing with other elders of the church, especially about the resurrection. Uh, in, they particularly highlight John uh chapter five, verse twenty-nine, the which says, And shall they shall come forth they that have done good unto resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Well, so if there's going to be everyone resurrected, but these different apportionments given you know, what constitutes good, having done good? What constitutes having done evil? How do we know what the differences are in those uh, manifestations? And so I, I think that, that that question leads to this, this expansive explanation. Part of the, the vision that I think many of us even know by heart is that powerful testimony that Joseph Smith gives. Now, this is a shared collective vision. This is not just Joseph having. It's why it's actually different than the first vision. The first vision is just Joseph. This vision is Sidney Rigdon and Joseph seeing this unfolded before them together and actually commenting to one another about what they're seeing as they're seeing it. So it's a shared vision. This is not just a singular visionary experience. It's a shared one. And as as starting with verse 19. It says, While we meditated upon these things, the Lord touched the eyes of our understanding, and they were opened, and the glory of the Lord shone round about. And we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father and received his fullness, and saw the holy angels and them that are sanctified before his throne worshiping God and the Lamb, who worship him forever and ever. And now after the many testimonies that have been which have been given of him this is the testimony last of all which we give of him that he lives for we saw him even on the right hand of God and we heard the voice-bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God that testimony of Joseph Smith is everyone has has heard it and they felt the power of it that Jesus lives is 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 something that Joseph is going to be testifying to throughout his life. Now, as we proceed further into the revelation, we're going to get to some things that are are maybe less accepted by uh, other uh, other Christians or at least not as well understood. Verse 25 starts to talk about the fact that there's this other being. There was an angel of God, who was in authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten of the Father, whom the Father loved, who was in the bosom of the Father, who was thrust down from the presence of God and the Son, and was called perdition, for the heavens wept over him. He was Lucifer, a son of the morning. Wherefore he this is verse twenty nine, wherefore he maketh war with the saints of God and encompass them round about. One aspect of Latter day Saint theology that comes from the Book of Mormon. It comes from the revelations Joseph Smith received. We, we talked about on an earlier podcast, the, the writings that were appearing on the stone that, that, that Hiram Page had. One of the things that increasingly makes Latter-day Saints more and more unique in the Christian world and the world generally is our belief that Satan is a real being, that it, Satan is not just a collection of ideas and thoughts about evil. But there actually is a being from the pre-mortal life that was cast out of the presence of God and is desperately trying to destroy our souls. And you know, you can ask the question: Why does it matter that we believe that that Satan is real? That Satan exists? Increasingly in the world, there are uh, fewer and fewer and fewer Christians that are uh, that believe that Satan is a real being. And as the Book of Mormon says, right, that, that he'll try to convince you, I am no devil, for there is none. And I think that's because if you don't realize that there is an enemy trying to desperately destroy your soul, then you might not be as vigilant against the tactics that that enemy is employing. Now, like I said, those are the more familiar aspects of it. We could go through all the qualifications that get one into each of the various kingdoms, right? The celestial kingdom, those who received the testimony of Jesus and believed on his name or baptized. Importantly, the, what verse 58 says, wherefore it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God, wherefore all things are theirs, whether life or death or things present or things to come are theirs, and they are Christ and Christ is gods. This is the be- not the beginning. There are some other things that, that allude to this. But this is one of the strong early revelations that Joseph is going to teach that talks about this eventual deification of, of, of mankind, that the idea that men and women could become like their heavenly father. And as Joseph you know, will teach eventually that we have a heavenly mother, that you could become gods and goddesses. You have this also being reflected here, that those who go to the celestial kingdom, those who are... Who are, are are part of this. They, they have the laying on of hands. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. They're going to go to this, this exalted state. Also, we could go through the, the, the description, I guess, of the people who are going to the terrestrial kingdom, that second kingdom. We could read through all of it, but, I, but again, I think this is relatively well known to people. They are bodies, uh, uh, terrestrial. They are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Wherefore they obtain not the crown of the kingdom of our God. They're the spirits of men kept in prison whom the Son visited and preached the gospel unto them that they might be judged according to men in the flesh who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh but afterwards received it. These are they who are the honorable men of the earth who are blinded by the craftiness of men. That that description of these people that are good people but they reject or don't accept this or they have accepted the testimony of Jesus but they're not valiant in it. The final kingdom that's discussed is really where the doctrine starts to become radical. Now, all of this is, is, is radical. You know, the, the idea that there is a, 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 an exalted kingdom where people are going to become like their Heavenly Father and their Heavenly Mother is incredibly radical. That's not something that's being taught at your local uh, Christian denomination. But the world that Joseph Smith lives in is one that focuses very much on the punishment that God is going to be dealing out to the people who do not believe. Almost everyone in America, every Protestant in America at the time, come from a Calvinist background where they they believe, John Calvin taught, that salvation is literally nothing of yourself. Nothing. Now when you're thinking, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I'm saved by faith. You know, I read the Bible, and because I read the Bible, I gained faith, and and because I had that faith, I'm going to be saved. Well, that's how you might think of it as a Latter-day Saint, because, but if if you listen to the little story I just told, that's placing yourself into part of the salvation, that you chose to read your Bible, that you were inspired, that you gained faith, and therefore you're saved. Calvin instead argued that salvation is actually nothing of yourself. The only reason you're saved, and by the way, you shouldn't be, is because God chose to save you even though you were a sinner. And when he chose to save you, he gave you the gift of faith. And that because he gave you the gift of faith, you are going to be saved. But it's not of yourself. It's not because you're good. It's not because you're doing the right things. It's because he chose to save you. To give you an idea of how expansive the doctrine of hell and damnation was and how many people go there. Let me quote to you from Jonathan Edwards, who's uh, he 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 lived in a gener- a generation before uh, uh, Joseph Smith uh, several generations before. but his teachings really solidified this kind of Calvinist theology that most Christian denominations in America uh, upheld. You're probably used to going to church and hearing uh, stories and testimonies and comments and scriptures about how much God loves you. Well, this is how. Uh, Jonathan Edwards describes it, God abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. So that's not exactly something you generally hear in a Sunday school. God hates you. Uh, well, um, okay. I mean, that's, uh, I, I'm not even sure what I've done. Well, and he'll go on to say, why? Well, because you're a sinner. God hates sin. You're a sinner. His wrath, this is him again, his wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of a purer eye than to bear you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. It's it's not a positive uh, thing when he talks about the 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 hell that these unrepentant sinners are going to go to. He says, it is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang on by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe and burn it asunder. And since most people are going to be going to hell, well, maybe we should find out what hell is going to be like. Edwards continues, it would be dreadful to suffer the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God for one moment, but you must suffer it for all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul." and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages, in the wrestling with this almighty merciless vengeance. And then, when you've done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this matter, you will know, That that is but a point or a dot to what remains, so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Now, uh, I'm slightly depressed just having read that. Uh, I I mean, I'm not even a follower of Jonathan Edwards, and yet somehow still kind of depressed. The description of hell um, by these Protestant theologians is so—hell is is so horrific— it is. It is horrible. It is uh, exquisite. It is torture. It is. It and and most importantly, it is forever, as, as he pointed out very well. There, after millions and millions of ages, suffering in hell, that's just one dot of hell. Uh, you you might have heard something uh, similar when people talk about eternity, right? That your your mortal life here is just. This little small point in your eternal existence. Well, Jonathan Edwards would agree with that. He wouldn't agree with your pre-mortal life. Uh, but he would say, if you're talking about hell, at least, absolutely. You know, this mortal life is is, is nothing compared to how long you're going to suffer in hell. And who goes to hell? Well, almost everyone. Because only people who have faith in Jesus, and therefore have the grace of Christ applied to them, are saved from this hell. And And you'll notice even those Christians who who think they are Christians, Jonathan Edwards is not preaching to a bunch of atheists, okay? He's preaching to people in his congregation who who are theoretically Christians. And he's saying that if you don't have the gift of faith given to you, you're going to that awful, terrible hell. So in Joseph Smith's time, if you were to draw the circles up on the board, right, if you were to draw the Calvinist plan of salvation, It would have, you know, this little teeny dot that you can't see, and that would be labeled heaven. And then a circle bigger than, you know, your, you know, your minivan would be hell. Essentially everyone goes there. You already know that a majority of the world goes there, because if you don't have faith in Jesus, which is a majority of the world, then you're going to go to hell. And frankly, at least Jonathan Edwards, didn't think Catholics were going to heaven even if they claimed to believe in Jesus. So a lot of anti-Catholicism in that as well for these reformers.
0: So my question then, Garrett, is I think when we think back to the time of Jonathan Edwards and the mid to early 1700s, we maybe even think of the Scarlet Letter and and this kind of Puritan form of Christianity. Um, Why is that such a popular belief if it's as harsh of a teaching as it is
1: that's a really great question and honestly whenever i teach about this or talk about calvinism one of the, one of the natural questions is why would anyone believe this so let me get this straight. Almost everyone's going to hell. I'm almost certainly going there. And if by some lucky happenstance God chose to save me and I don't go to hell, I won't even actually know whether or not I was chosen for that until later. And hopefully I have it. I mean, it 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 might make you say, Well, well, why well, part of the problem is the reformers starting place, right? Starting with Martin Luther. The, the, the reaction of Martin Luther is to this overemphasis of, of what he sees of works in salvation in the Catholic Church. I mean, you had people literally buying their way out of purgatory, which is, you know, a, 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 in Catholic theology, this this waiting place where you're burned from all— of, you have all of your uh, your uh, your venial sins taken away from you so that you can actually go to heaven, because you have to be pure to be in heaven with Jesus. So, you know, that's the reason why. And instead, you know, Luther argued, no— there's no works at all. It's just faith and grace. If you have faith in God, then you're going to be saved. And if you don't, then you're going to hell and welcome to the barbecue, pick up some s'mores on the <laughs> way. I mean, you're going no matter what if you don't have faith in Jesus. For for the early reformers, their doctrine could be could be reduced to those who have faith in Jesus are going to heaven. Those who don't, it actually doesn't matter the reason why they don't have faith in Jesus. They might not have faith in Jesus because they're living in, you know, in what is Indonesia today, right? They, they might not have faith in Jesus because their parents were atheists. They might not have faith in Jesus because they were never taught how to read, and, and, and so they were never able to, to even read any of the scriptures. It actually doesn't matter why. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not saved. Well, so that actually leads to this really pressing problem. If you have to have faith in Jesus to be saved, and almost no one in the world has faith in Jesus, certainly not the kind that Luther or Calvin thought you should have, then what does that mean? It means that almost no one is saved. So what's more likely that an all-powerful, omnipotent God created a world where he desperately wanted to save everyone, but just couldn't quite figure out how to do it. He's all-powerful. There's a couple things he can't do. He can't program the remote to his, you know, to his DVD player, and he can't save the people he wants to save. I mean, obviously, I'm being facetious there, but the point being, if you have to choose what's more logical, the very point that God's all-powerful means what? God does whatever it is he wants to do. So if you say God wants to save everybody, then then God does save everybody, right? Now for a Latter Day Saint, I know that that's you know quickly hitting up against you're like, no, what about agency? I I I I, I, I you know, I hate to break it to you, uh, Latter Day Saints aren't Calvinists, right? So um, it it will feel weird to you as I'm saying it, but it's also a very logical thing. To argue the opposite is to say that God desperately wants something but he can't have it, right? And and, and in, even anything you say is like, well, yeah, I mean, God wants to save everybody, but, you know, Adam, you know, liked apples, and because of that, you know, we're all going to burn in hell. Um, and, and well, yes, but remember, God created, the, at least these Christians believe, that God created Adam out of nothing, right? Only Latter-day Saints believe in a preexistence, and we're going to spend a ton of time on the preexistence later when we do Doctrine and Covenants section 93, and, and I'll just keep you know throwing these out that at some future date we'll do them. <laughs> uh, probably will be canceled by then. I think since we're self-produced, we'll be canceling ourselves. But um, uh, it, we'll talk more about uh, uh, the preexistent life. But pre-existent life is really crucial to what we believe because w- the reality is that we are not beings that were created by God at the moment of conception or at birth, which is what all other Christians believe. And so, again, if you're a Christian, and God created you out of nothing at the moment you were conceived, and he knew that you were going to be born in, uh, a, 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 into a tribal religion somewhere in Africa, and he knew that you were never going to even hear the word Jesus in your life, let alone have faith in him, then God already knew before he ever created you, because you didn't exist before. He already knew that you were going to burn in hell. So what's more likely? That an all-powerful God never intended to save that person because he's the one who had them born there. Or that an all-powerful God desperately wants to save that person but just can't figure out how to do it. I mean, he is the one who sets the bounds of salvation. He decides how people are saved. He has the power to do anything he wants, but the one thing he wants most he just can't figure out how to do. Anyway, uh, this, uh, this idea would be presented a different way, of course, right? I mean, I'm presenting it as a Latter-day Saint. But for Calvin and other theologians of the time, Jonathan Edwards, for instance, they would turn that question exactly on its head. If if I were to say, well, why doesn't God save more people? The response from John Calvin would be, "Uh, look around you. Look how sinful everyone is. Everyone is filled. With a desperate, selfish desire to do anything. They rebel against God at every single second chance they can get. This world is so filled with wickedness, you're asking me why God doesn't save more people? The real question is why does God save anyone? Because He shouldn't. And in many ways, Calvinism has this very leveling idea all are sinners, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And if that's true, then none of us deserve to be saved. None of us, not one of us, deserves to be saved. Why are people saved then? Because even though we don't deserve it, God decides to reach down and grab a few people. Let me let me give you an analogy. It's uh, it, it's one I'll use uh, often because uh, it involves camping. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I am not the world's greatest camper, so I know that now we, you know, anyone who's listening has already turned it off. You know, how can you live in Utah and not love camping? Uh, there are some of you shouting at your iPhone right now, uh, how much you uh, you love camping. I get it. Other people love it. Uh, that wasn't one of the talents I was given, apparently, in the preexistence or any of them. And um, let's say that you go camping. Okay, you go camping with your friends. Um, you've made a terrible life choice, so I guess you're going camping anyway, and. There you are um, sitting over the fire, uh, you know, and you're gonna you're gonna cook some food up over the fire. Now you're gonna cook food over the fire because you're gonna lie to your friends and say that you actually think that food tastes better cooked over an open fire. Like, oh no, I think actually it's even better when it's over an open flame. Well, you're you're anti camping. I'm pretty anti camping. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm the Calvin of camping. Wow. And um, and and well, you'll say that, right? You'll say, oh yeah, I I actually think it even tastes better cooked over. Except in our houses, none of us, right. Yeah, why why are we not cooking over an open fire? because yeah, everything you've ever taught everything you've ever cooked on a camping trip has tasted like dirt and ash. <laughs> everything. <laughs> right, well let's have some eggs. Taste like dirt and ash. Well, why don't we have some so so one of the things you might cook on this camping trip is bacon. Because bacon is, is so good that if, even if you don't cook it very well, it's still pretty good, right? You undercook bacon, it's still pretty good. You overcook bacon, it's still pretty good. I mean, the reality is bacon's hard to mess up. So there you are cooking some bacon over the fire. And you have got it on a tripod over the fire and a big gust of wind comes up and hits your tripod. It flips over that pan and all that bacon starts to fall into the fire. Now, by the law of nature, by the law of gravity, all of that bacon should be burned in the fire. All of it should be destroyed. Now, you don't have to do anything You got plenty of bacon, okay? You got coolers of bacon. It's the only thing you brought with you camping. You're like, if you're going to make me go camping, I'm taking bacon, right? You don't have to do anything, but because you can, because you're sitting there, because you have an oven mitt, as that pan flips over, you reach out and you grab a few pieces of the bacon that should have burned in the fire, but you grabbed it and you pulled it out. So it didn't burn in the fire. Now, the bacon you grabbed wasn't special bacon. It wasn't the perfectly cooked bacon. It wasn't the applewood, hickory-smoked bacon. It was just bacon. It was just like all the other pieces of bacon. You grabbed them because you could, not because it did anything to merit it. This is how Calvinists see salvation. God chooses to save you in spite of your sins and in spite of yourself. Not because you did anything. I mean, again, for a Latter-day Saint, you're thinking, no, uh, but you have to apply the atonement to yourself. You have to You have to believe. You have to choose. Of course you have to have faith to be saved in a Calvinist religion. But you have faith because God gave you faith. Even having faith is not of yourself. So you might say, to, you know, a, a classical Latter-day Saint description of salvation would be like this, right? You know, I, I, I wondered whether or not what was true. And so I I went and I started reading my scriptures and I had prayed about the Book of Mormon and and I felt the Holy Spirit tell me that it was true. And and that's how I came to have faith in Jesus. Look, that's a perfectly acceptable way to have faith, by the way, I'm not saying not. But a Calvinist would say the exact opposite. God, before this world was ever created, predestined to save me. He chose to save me before he ever created me out of nothing. I, because he chose to save me, felt a draw to the scriptures because he'd already saved me and that gave me that gift of faith that led me to that so god did everything and i did nothing so god is really at the center of that theology well because god's at the center of that theology then you know hell ends up being a very big place because it, all protestants believe the same thing if you don't accept jesus then you go to hell well Almost no one in the world has accepted Jesus, right? I mean, comparatively, right? 20%, 30%, whatever you want to put it at, most people who've ever lived are going to hell, according to that. This is what almost every Christian in Joseph Smith's life would have believed. This is exactly what happens when Joseph Smith's brother dies. When Alvin dies, their members, most of the Smiths, are members of the Presbyterian church there in town. And at least by one account we have of the sermon, the Presbyterian who's a very, very Calvinist religion. Then um, uh, he comes and declares that Alvin is in hell. You know, not exactly the best way, you know, not it's the, a rough funeral. It's not yeah. the funeral sermon you want, right? It's not, uh, it's not, it's not what you were expecting. Like, oh, maybe we can get Pastor Johnson to speak. Well, Alvin's in hell. Amen. You know, I mean, that's not exactly what your expectation is of your funeral sermon. But why did that pastor say it? Now, we sometimes in the church will say things like, "Well, it's because Alvin wasn't baptized." Well, yeah, it's that. But the reason why baptism doesn't save anyone in Protestantism, you don't, you don't get baptized to be saved. But if you're someone who God gave the gift of faith to, then by the time you're an adult like Alvin was, of course you would have said you wanted to be baptized. So you must not ever have had the gift of faith. God must never have chosen to save you because if you had, you would have said, hey, I better get baptized. So th- this is something that Joseph has heard even as a youth. And you could tell this is something that stays with him that theology through the rest of his life. In fact, we'll we'll talk about it again. Again, because this podcast currently is so bad, I'll just keep referencing future ones and maybe you'll keep coming back. And at some point, it'll be what you're actually looking for. Um, but that idea that Joseph is raised with, that you can't make it if you didn't do everything you had to do in this life, is still with Joseph all the way into 1836 to the point when he sees Alvin in vision in the in the Kirtland temple he sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom joseph's response is not like well, of course Alvin's there I mean he was like a totally good guy I mean of course he's there what is what does joseph say we just we just read it here in dNC 76 it says that if you aren't baptized into the church of the firstborn you aren't going to the celestial kingdom well Alvin wasn't that means joseph for four years after dNC 76. Thought that his brother was not able to go to the celestial kingdom. Now, Joseph believed that earnestly because God hadn't revealed more light and knowledge yet. And what does he get from DNC 137? That all those who would have embraced the knowledge will also go to the celestial kingdom. But Joseph's response when he sees Alvin is not like, of course he's there. I marveled. Joseph stunned in 1836 that alvin could be in the celestial kingdom and i think that's because what was joseph raised with he was raised with a theology that said if you don't accept jesus it doesn't matter why you don't accept him. welcome to hell population you you are going if you don't accept jesus so anyway the uh uh the point uh, I wanted to make here, you know, back to Doctrine and Session 76, is this is the point of the revelation that is so radical that it causes members of the church to leave. Now, that, that might be surprising to you. I would guess that very few of you have ever said to yourselves, you know what, if there's three degrees of glory, that's it, I'm out. The, I, I can't believe anymore.
0: This idea that held... That hell doesn't exist in the classical sense, is what you
1: saying. Yeah, well, and as we'll read it here in in the Revelation, um, the the Revelation starts by saying, these are they who are liars. This is verse 103, talking about the celestial kingdom. So the lowest kingdom, right? These are they who are liars and sorcerers and adulterers and whoremongers and whosoever loves and makes a lie. These are they who suffer the wrath of God on earth. These are they who suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. These are they who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of an almighty God. So, so far, Jonathan Edwards is getting yeah, a run for his that money. Sounds
0: exactly yeah. what my yeah. understanding of what hell would yeah, be. Yeah, exactly.
1: So far, verses 103 to 106, most, uh, the first part of 106, is exactly what these Christians would have thought hell was, right? The problem is, verse 106 then says, Until until these are they who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of an almighty God until the fullness of times. When Christ shall have subdued all enemies under his feet and shall have perfected his work. Meaning that these people have nothing to do with God. These people who don't accept God. The liars, the sorcerers, the adulterers, the whoremongers. That there will be a time when they stop suffering in hell. So that right there is a radical break. If you were to ask a Christian theologian, one of the definitions of hell is its eternal nature. Hell is a place people go forever. And here, Joseph is having revealed to him that, well, this is a, it's a, a temporary suffering that people go to, and that everyone will at some point have suffered enough that they... Go to a kingdom of heaven, which is what the telestial kingdom is. Now, now, Latter-day Saints, we're we are surrounded by a Protestant world. If you're living in America, I mean, if you're listening to this in another country, first of all, you probably aren't. But if you are, you you might come from a different a, a different uh, culture.
0: Probably aren't surrounded by Protestants, or probably aren't <laughs> listening to this. Both,
1: I probably both. Actually, you're not. You're neither surrounded by Protestants nor are you listening. Although, if they're not listening, then they didn't hear me just say that. So, I guess at some point, someone's at least telling them about it. But it, at least in a, in America, the, it's a primarily Protestant culture, and sometimes that Protestant culture even works its way into our own theology to the point where we will say things like, "I hear it said all the time." Well, the celestial kingdom—that's like our hell well it's a kingdom of heaven well yeah but like if you go there you'll be so miserable that you'll you know you you won't you won't even want to exist anymore
0: because you'll know what you could have done and didn't do yeah
1: right and yet what does the revelation actually say about the telestial kingdom verses 89 and 90 and thus we saw in heavenly vision the glory of the telestial which surpasses all understanding I'll sometimes hear people say, like, well, the telestial kingdom, that's that—that's as glorious as like earth is. Well, apparently not. I mean, I know we use that as a representation at times, but clearly the telestial kingdom is more glorious than earth because God just said it here to Joseph Smith, right? It surpasses all understanding. And in fact, no man knows it except him to whom God has revealed. It. In fact, Joseph is saying, I can't describe to you how glorious the telestial kingdom is you can't comprehend it the only way you could understand how glorious the telestial kingdom is is if god opened the heavens to you and showed it to you in fact in 1843 joseph's going to uh rewrite um dnc 76 into a poetic version it's it's beautiful. He writes this poetic version of it um you know it, you know it he talks about, you know, things like I beheld the celestial in glory sublime, which is the most excellent kingdom that is where God, Eden, the father in harmony reigns, almighty, supreme and eternal and bliss. Right. So that sounds a lot like we might think of the celestial. It's a, it's a nice little poem that Joseph writes. But when he talks about the celestial kingdom, this is what he says. And thus I beheld in the vision of heaven, the celestial glory, dominion and bliss, surpassing the great understanding of men unknown save revealed in a world vain as this bliss is a pretty strong word right that that's actually how most christians describe heaven right it's a it's a state of pure happiness right bliss and that is how joseph is describing the great glory of the lowest kingdom the celestial kingdom is a dominion of bliss so look, I understand why a Latter Day Saint might say, "Well, the Tushil Kingdom that's like our hell," but you can already tell that if Joseph's calling it bliss, it's not whatever Jonathan Edwards was calling hell, right? You can you can already see a pretty wide gap between the two. Look, I understand why Latter Day Saints do it, and you know, we're trying to, when we talk to other people about our religion, we're trying to make it relatable, and so we're we're trying to help them understand, and and you know we we think maybe we think to ourselves well if we tell people that the telestial kingdom is like a great place then they might go there well you're worried about the wrong thing because well apparently everyone you know you're at least going there regardless right so i mean i can't like shoot for the telestial kingdom i guess i mean all i can do is, is do better um but this is this is a really hard doctrine for people to accept now again I'm guessing that most of you who are aware of this, or maybe you're hearing about it for the first time right now, you haven't really thought about it that way before maybe, you're not upset by it. You're not mad. You're not saying, that's it. Where's my membership record? I'm sending it in. Right? You, you instead are, you, you think about how great and merciful our Father in heaven is. Right? That, that he is, is going to, at some point, even the vilest of sinners are going to have suffered enough in the next life that they that they will will to be be saved in a kingdom of heaven. And when we talk about salvation, that's actually part of the problem. A lot of times when Latter-day Saints talk about being saved, what we really mean is being exalted. We mean, oh, I'm saved in the celestial kingdom. Well, a lot of times when Joseph's talking about it, he's talking about being saved from hellfire. Being saved from eternal hellfire rather than than uh and and, and the reality is this this doctrine that Protestant hell, this eternal place of fire and burning that almost everyone goes to and that is eternal in duration, doesn't actually exist. And so imagine the juxtaposition. If you are somebody who's been taught your whole life the awful duration of hell, how long everyone's going to be there, how horrible it's going to be, and then Joseph receives a revelation that says, except it doesn't exist you can see why for some people that was too far.
0: So if I'm a Latter-day Saint and I would say, well, what about Doctrine and Covenants section 19, where Christ is talking about this suffering being so great that uh, that if they don't repent, then they must suffer even as I? How, how, how would you answer yeah, that? Yeah, I
1: mean, we're, we're not saying, well, the revelation is not saying that you're not going to suffer for your sins, right? You are going to suffer. And, and how great a suffering you know not is what DNC 19 says, right? But then it also goes on to say that when eternal uh, judgment is is called eternal because God is eternal, not because it lasts for eternity, and uh, eternal suffering it, it, it's it's not eternal because of, of 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 its duration, but because it's God who decreed it, and so this is not a you know although this would be a much more popular podcast if the podcast was Why You're Not Going to Suffer for Any of Your Sins by Garrett Dirkmont. <laughs> um, it, 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 I mean, it would be popular, and um, uh, I'm sure, but uh, you are going to suffer for sins that you don't repent for. But that's not the problem people have with the theology. Of course, Christians already believe people are going to suffer for sins they don't repent for. The problem is we're saying not only will that suffering have an end, that when it ends, those people are going to be resurrected, and they are going to heaven. They're going to heaven. And 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 however badly we want to badmouth the celestial kingdom, so that we feel better about you know when we end up going there, I guess. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, I I don't know why. But I mean, you know, we don't want people to shoot for it. We don't want to aim for it. The reality is, it's so great and so glorious. Joseph Smith said that you can't comprehend it. And that's where the liars and whoremongers are going. If that's how great the telestial kingdom is, imagine the glory of the terrestrial kingdom. And now imagine exaltation. We can't comprehend as mortals. We can't understand the glory of the lowest kingdom. That's incredible to me. Joseph Smith is not going to just talk about this one time. I mean, that's the best part. Um, He's actually going to talk about this doctrine. God has made provision for every spirit in the eternal world, he teaches. This is later. And the spirit of our friends should be searched out and saved. Any man that has a friend in eternity can save him if he is committed, if he has not committed the unpardonable sin. This is after the doctrine of baptism for the dead has been revealed, which I'm sure we'll do another podcast on that. Essentially, we're going to keep deflecting every doctrine to a future date that will never arrive. It's very similar to Protestant hell. just will go on forever um, and be just as, as damning. Um, the, As Joseph said, any man that has a friend in eternity can save him if he has not committed the unpardonable sin. He cannot be damned through all eternity. He can't be damned through all eternity. There is a possibility for his escape in a little time. If a man has knowledge, he can be saved. If he's guilty of great sins, he's punished for it. Like we just said, if if you're guilty of your sins, you are going to be punished for them. When he consents to obey the gospel, whether alive or dead, he is saved. His own mind damns him. I have no fear. This is one of my favorite quotes of Joseph. Because, of course, people are constantly telling Joseph, well, you're going to burn in hell. Joseph's response. I have no fear of hellfire that don't exist. No man uh, can commit the unpardonable sin until he receives the Holy Ghost. All will suffer until they obey Christ himself. Right? So he goes goes on uh, to talk about that. Um, So maybe it leads to a natural question of, okay, who are these? Who are the unpardonable well, sins? Well, so that was yeah. that was
0: actually the question that I was going to ask. So, so there's you know some philosophy within the LDS Church that well, that's that's the true hell, and right. so so there's perhaps well, we know lots of folks from the pre mortal existence that, uh, that right. are going to be yeah, having that, that's, a not very,
1: time. Not, that's not very, it's that's not very. Congruent with Christian thought, anyway, because there's no pre mortal existence.
0: Certainly, but in an attempt to say that there is a true hell in the classic sense, we do have outer darkness, right? So, in unpardonable, unpardonable sin,
1: yeah. So let's let's go back to the revelation. Yeah, um, that this is verse thirty one. Thus saith the Lord concerning all those who know my power and have been made partakers thereof and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome and to deny the truth and defy my power they are they who are sons of perdition of whom I've said it be better for them that they'd never been born for they are vessels of wrath doomed to suffer the wrath of God with the devil and his angels in eternity. Verse 34, very important concerning whom I have said there is no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. And that, that sounds a little bit worse, right? In fact, Part of the problem is that Christians who see the world and, and the afterlife in this heaven-hell dichotomy, even they misappropriate the idea of outer darkness to be Mormon hell, right? Um I was reading a a great scholarly book on the history of of damnation and hell in early America. It's a great book. It's called Damned Nation. So, if you want to, you know, have something you can carry around with a curse word on it just so you can feel better about, you know, you're you're living the hard life. Um uh it, it talks about the various ideals about salvation and hell and who goes there and things like that. It's a really great historical book a- until they get to Latter-day Saints. And it, it's like the scholar decided that they weren't going to talk to a single Latter-day Saint before they decided to write that one up. Because they basically said, well, the Latter-day Saints just decided to call their hell, uh, you know, outer darkness. So it was the same thing, just called something different. W- well, okay. We, so we do believe a place in in total suffering that you can never be redeemed from. But it's very, 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 very different than Protestant hell. So
0: I was going to ask, though, as it relates to Joseph Smith's interpretation of who goes there, how loose or strict is he in, in saying— Joseph Smith seems
1: to... to say that there are very few people that go there, right? So remember, the idea of Protestant hell in Joseph's time is—the default is you're going there. You're going. You're, you've got a one-way ticket. It's all, all upgraded to first class. You're ready to go. You're going. Unless the grace of Christ inter interposes. Outer darkness, on the other hand, is something that is very different. Joseph will later describe this in uh, 1844. He'll say, Jesus Christ will save all except the sons of perdition. So if you think I'm teaching something really radical here, that people are, you know, when I say that, you know, Jesus is eventually going to save everyone. Again, when I'm when Joseph's saying save, he's not saying exaltation. He's saying saved from the suffering of hellfire, save from that anguish of torment, that punishment from sin, Jesus Christ will save all except the sons of perdition. So whatever we're saving from hellfire is happening to essentially everyone except the sons of perdition. Well, luckily Joseph explains how someone becomes a son of perdition. So if you're wanting to be one, here's the recipe guide. Um, What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? They must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens open to them, know God, and then sin against Him. This is not your casual. I didn't hear. I decided not to open the door when the missionaries came to my door. You know, I sent my son to the door to say, "My my dad says he's not home." Yeah, um, this is someone who because they've had an actual vision of God, they actually know God. So they're not someone in a state. So so in today's world, all the time when, when people sin, we'll often give them a way out, right? You know, we talk about my friend who's a sinner and we say, man, I can't believe Bill, you know, cheated on his wife and left his family. And well, if only Bill understood who he really was, if only Bill really understood the purpose of this life, he he would act differently. In fact, Jesus says the same thing, right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The idea behind that is what? If they actually knew that they were crucifying the Savior of the world, the Son of God, they wouldn't do it. Knowledge is the deciding factor in whether or not someone is going to commit that horrific sin. But as Joseph teaches, Someone who becomes a son of perdition is someone who has a certain knowledge of who Jesus is and would if they could crucify him again. It's hard to even think of that horrific stance. But the reason why the reason why, um, the reason why You know, as you're thinking, well, that doesn't seem very fair that everyone's going to go to heaven. Maybe you're thinking that. Um, The the reason why God is so merciful to us, even if we've lived a horrible life on this earth, even if we're unrepentant all throughout this life, is because every single person, this goes back to our doctrine of pre-existence, every single person who you will ever see in this earth, every single person, they all chose Jesus. That's why they're here. If they didn't choose Jesus, then they, they wouldn't be here. Every mortal being at some point chose Jesus. And so because we kept our first estate, as we learn in the scriptures, that you're going to receive a reward of glory. Yes, you are going to suffer for your sins. But even those sinners are going to go to the celestial glory of heaven after they've suffered.
0: So this is interesting because essentially there's... there's pretty significant similarity then with Christian belief of that we must accept Jesus. It's just the time that we accepted Jesus differs.
1: Yeah. I mean, the preexistent life in many ways for Latter-day Saint theology is the deciding factor in our theology. Many of the things that, that we believe differently than our Christian brothers and sisters do, it hinges on that idea, who we are, Right, that we're children of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. That's part of a preexistence. It's not just a child because God created us, a a child because we live in heaven a long time ago. It is true if you're going to go through the primary song, right? Um, And all of us already made a choice. Faced with following our father's plan, which was clearly, I mean, God didn't trick us into coming to this world right he did, he didn't play a game of three card money with us and and oh, 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 you know follow the card follow the card follow the card oh mortal life is terrible i think we very well knew that mortal life was going to be terrible and knowing that we still chose jesus now we just don't remember that we made the choice because we passed through a veil but the act of choosing jesus at all in our first estate means Though we will suffer for our sins after this life, at some point we will have suffered enough that because we chose Jesus in the premortal life, we will go to this heaven. And, and, and you're right. I mean, our you know, evangelical Christian friends, they will say if you accept Jesus in your heart and confess with your mouth you know uh, that, that he is the Savior, that you are going to be saved, that you're going to go to heaven because you've accepted him. And, and so in, in many ways, Latter-day Saints and evangelical Christians actually believe something very similar. They don't believe in an exaltation where you become like God. They believe that you go to heaven where you're in the presence of Jesus and you're in a dominion of bliss. We believe something very similar, that the very fact that you accepted Jesus in the premortal life means that at some point you're going to heaven. It just differs on, on when you go. And of course, the main difference in Latter-day Saint theology is this idea that you can be exalted, that you can actually become like God. That we'll spend more time on at some point in the future too. But being a son of perdition, at least the way Joseph defines it, is something in which the person is not sinning ignorantly. A question arises sometimes, and it actually it was something that actually frustrated uh, Brigham Young because it would come up a couple times in, in Utah. Do you think that there'll be a salvation ever for the sons of perdition the 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 spirits who followed Satan in the premortal life? are they ever gonna like get another chance, right? Just like you know what, my bad, I guess we'll follow God's plan, right? I mean, the problem is we're thinking about that like a mortal, right, And a mortal is thinking, oh man, someone who hits rock bottom, you know, sure, you might think it's okay to do heroin now. But, you know, you wake up, you know, in an alley and, and you say to yourself, I've hit rock bottom. I need to, I need to go get help. Well, that, that's dependent upon increased knowledge. The spirits that follow Lucifer already have a perfect knowledge of God. They were in the presence. Of, they didn't pass through a veil. You passed through a veil. They already knew God. You better believe that your father in heaven had a pretty good argument <laughs> for why you should come. And follow his plan. You know, maybe even, dare I say, a perfect argument for why you should follow his plan. So it wasn't about not having a knowledge of God. The spirits that rebelled knew perfectly who God was. And they knew perfectly who Satan was. And they, with perfect knowledge, chose Satan, which is how someone becomes a son of perdition. They know perfectly who god is and knowing perfectly because they've had this vision they they know god they decide to reject their first estate i wish i'd never chosen jesus in the first place now i'm i'm not uh, a prophet okay Uh, you know spoiler alert um uh so I, i don't have the ability to declare doctrine and 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 There are others who might have different opinions about who ends up going to outer darkness and being a center prediction. I'm just quoting from from the Joseph Smith here. There are different people that will have different views that maybe there would be more people that go. You know, some people believe that people who are very high level, uh, you know, church members who've had visions, who apostatize, they might be candidates for it. Regardless, that number is incredibly small. In comparison to what the christian theology of hell is and and so what does that mean i mean to me how awesome is it how expansive our father's mercy is that because we chose him in the premortal life we we all even if we totally make a mess of this life if we never repent, we refuse all throughout this life, we don't accept him at all, and we go to an afterlife that is filled with suffering, at some point, even the worst of us will have suffered exquisitely enough that we'll go to a kingdom of bliss, that we'll go to the celestial kingdom, that God will, as, as Joseph Smith said, Jesus Christ will save all except for the sons of perdition.
0: So, You've laid out this case for um, an extremely merciful and loving God. Uh, How is this received by early Latter-day Saints who, as Joseph, is teaching the vision?
1: Well, so some people loved it. I mean, Wilford Woodruff, I mean, for him, it's one of the reasons why he believes, in fact. Let me quote Wilford Woodruff to you for a second. He says, before I saw Joseph, I did not care how old he was or how young he was. I didn't care how he looked, whether his hair was long or short. There was no BYU honor code, obviously. Wilford uh, the man that advanced that revelation was a prophet of God. I knew it for myself. And then he'll later talk about it. I will refer to the vision, notice what he calls it, the vision alone, as a revelation which gives more light, more truth, more principle than any revelation contained in any other book we ever read. It makes plain our understanding from our present condition, where we came from, why we are here, and where we are going. Any man may know through that revelation what his part and condition will be. So someone like Wilford Woodruff. And when is is this? uh, In in the 1860s,
0: 70s, and 80s. So this is is after knowing all of these things that this was the
1: this Yeah, the vision was still a central part of belief. But the reality was Wilfred Woodruff's reaction of this immediate and total embrace, is is probably more the outlier. Other people, people who loved Joseph, people who loved the, the theology, had a much harder time with it. In fact, probably the one that's best well known, you might have I might have even heard before, is that of Brigham Young. Brigham Young is converted um, shortly, uh, you know, uh, before that. Uh, well, shortly after this, actually. But later in Utah, in 1852, he's talking about you know the difficulty of receiving some revelations. And this is from uh, his unedited remarks here, so it's going to sound a little bit rough. But he says, you can understand from the few remarks I make with regard to the gospel, whatever was revealed through Joseph, a great many things was revealed. When they was first revealed, they came in contact with our own prejudices. We didn't know how to understand them. Now, when he's using the term prejudice there, it's the 19th century way of view. Today, when we use the word prejudice, we almost entirely mean someone who's a, a bigot against somebody, right? Someone who's a racist or a sexist, whatever. Um, they're, they're meaning by the, the actual definition of it, that you've prejudged it, right? You already have an idea of what that thing is supposed to be. And so when a revelation comes and tells you something different, you're like, well, no, that, that can't be because I already know the answer to that. And, and for him, it's, it's very much the case. We didn't know how to understand them. I refer to myself in one instance. I could never fix up in my mind a God sending everybody to a lake of fire and brimstone to be cooked over for a little sin that you'd committed, whether you were a sinner or not. Now, Brigham Young was uh, followed a more Methodist tradition, right, which was, was not Calvinist. Um, it, it's an Arminian tradition following a guy by the name of Jacobus Arminius, Arminius argued, yes, mankind is totally depraved. Yes, mankind doesn't deserve to be saved. Yes, mankind's all going to hell. Except, there's the big except in there. And that is, he argued, there was one good thing you could do. You could choose God. You could choose God. And if you chose God, then you could be saved. So so that Arminian slash Wesleyan Methodist tradition was that you did have a part in your salvation. You had to choose Jesus. Now, if we go back to our camping analogy, right, after you ate your burnt bacon, you also, because you decided, well, I'm already up here, I guess I've got to go on a hike now because let's add insult to injury, you know, uh, but but like all people who go on a hike, you can't just hike, right? Because if you just hike, people won't know that you've hiked, so you have to take Pictures of it, and you've got to be able to post them as soon as you get down to where you have some kind of, you know, service. Like, oh, I don't have it yet. Oh, now, and it's on my Insta. Um, so there you, you know, you go out and you're, you're trying to get a picture overlooking the bluff of the mountain, you know, and you you've got it on your selfie stick, and you lean over and you're trying to get all of the mountain top in the background as you're standing, and you fall off a cliff because you're trying to, and you fall off the cliff behind you. Now, again, by the laws of nature, by the law of, law of gravity, you should die that should be the end of you but you grab a tree branch on the way down and 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 you know that if nothing happens you are going your are you're certain destruction so what do you do you call out to your friends back at camp help me help me help me help me right your friend who's back at camp you know she hears you and she comes running Now, in that moment, your friend sees you dangling over the cliff, hanging onto this tree branch. Your friend desperately wants to save you. And she says to you, give me your hand and I'll pull you up. Now, your friend wants to save you. But in order for her to save you, you have to grab a hold of her hand. Now, whatever the reason is why you don't grab her hand doesn't really matter. Maybe you don't grab her hand because you're like, well, I think if I can just get my foot up and and you fall and you die. Maybe you think, well, I'm not sure my friend can pull me up. And so you don't grab her hand and you fall and you die. It makes no difference. In the end, the reason why you fall is because you didn't let go and grab a hold of of your friend's hand. This is how Arminius and and Wesley and and Methodism, this is how they saw Jesus' salvation, that Jesus died for everyone. He desperately wants to save everyone, but we have to choose him. So Brigham Young's from that tradition. That's not a limited that God never intended to save most people, that in fact God desperately does want to save everybody. But the reality was still the same. Almost no one, figuratively speaking, in the world, you know, relatively to, to the population, very, 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 very few people have faith in Jesus in their time, Right? So that means most people are still going to hell. So in Calvinism or Arminianism, in these two belief systems that dominated Christian thought at the time, either way, almost everyone who lived on earth was going to hell. Either Jesus desperately wanted to save you and you didn't have faith in Jesus and so you went to hell, or God never intended to save you and you didn't have faith in Jesus and you went to hell. But either way, if you didn't have faith in Jesus in this life, you went to hell. So Brigham's saying one of the problems he actually had with Christianity was the fact that so many people were going to hell, right? I I could never fix up in my mind God sending everybody to a lake of fire and brimstone. It, it didn't make sense to him, right? God's loving, but almost everyone cooks in hell. So even though he had a problem with that, when the truth came to him, the revelation, the vision came, it was still really hard for him to accept. And he says, My tradition, uh, uh, my traditions were such that when the vision was given, and notice what he calls it again, calls it the vision. That's what they all call it, the vision. It's such a big deal to him that when that first came to me, it was so directly contrary and opposed to my education and traditions. Says I, wait, and I didn't reject it, but I could not understand it. Brigham starts to have this wrestle with himself. Wait a minute, your Saying that there's no hell. You're saying that eternal hell doesn't actually. You're saying that instead of almost everyone going to hell, that there isn't one. That's a pretty big difference. And you can see him wrestling with himself. I could then feel what tradition had done for me. Suppose it was true. Then. All I'd ever heard from my priests or my parents all along the way who taught me to read the Bible and understand is diametrically opposed to this. You can see I'm wrestling with this. If this revelation is true, then every pastor I've ever had that I've respected, my parents, all the everything I've read the Bible as, all of it, I was wrong. If if Joseph Smith's revelation is true all of mankind, except for these sons of perdition, are eventually saved from hellfire, then everybody's wrong. And you can see why Brigham, he was struck by it, stymied by it. Now, really instructive, great aspect of this is that Brigham didn't say, wait a minute, that's not what I thought, that's not what I believe." Well, this is obviously false, Joseph Smith's a false prophet, the whole church is false, you know, and walk away. He instead said, wait. And I didn't reject it, but I couldn't understand it. So I think that's important to understand for all of us, kind of as an application, that all of us are going to have things at times that we don't fully understand. The prophets are going to teach things that we don't fully understand. And sometimes because we don't fully understand them, we might say, well, do I I even still believe? Hopefully you don't beat yourself up when there are things that are revealed or taught that you don't fully understand but hopefully you can do what Brigham Young did next. He said, I would think and I would pray and I would read and I would think and I would pray and I reflected until I knew and saw for myself by the visions of the Spirit that actually came in contact with my own feelings. Brigham Young doesn't reject the vision, even though it makes no sense to him and it's contrary to everything he's ever believed. He instead undertakes what appears to be a years-long effort. I mean, we don't know how long, but it sounds like it's a long time of reading and thinking and praying about it until eventually he receives a testimony of it. Now, not everybody takes that same route. In fact, there are others who um, it's it's too far gone. I mean, there there are people who who simply say, I, I can't believe that. In fact, in a recently um, uh, uncovered document, we know that one of our earliest major apostates from the church, um, Joseph Wakefield, he uh, is one of the one of our early one of the early converts to the church. He's actually uh, you'll you can find him um, in the Doctrine and Covenants. He's one of the people called on the mission to Missouri, um, and he's one of the first people who's ordained to the high priesthood in the 1831 meeting. Well, so things seem to be going well. He's and he's a powerful missionary on his mission. He converts all kinds of people. Among them, George A. Smith is baptized by by uh, uh, Joseph Wakefield. Later, uh in, in this sermon that George A. Smith, you know, is talking about the guy who baptized him and how Joseph Wakefield apostatized, he says that Joseph Wakefield couldn't accept the idea that hell didn't exist, and that he had been raised a Presbyterian, and so that was a very strong Calvinist that, you know, everyone's going to hell and you better, you know, get ready for it. And, and so when Joseph taught the vision that that was beyond what he could accept and that that's what caused him to leave. Now, and he doesn't just leave. He leaves with Augusto. He eventually is going to become one of the leading members of the anti-Mormon committee in Kirtland that is actually trying to support and pay for Dr. Philastus Hurlbut's affidavits that he's collecting against Joseph. When Hurlbut is taken to trial for making threats against Joseph and his family's life, threatening to wash his hands in the blood of Joseph Smith, Joseph Wakefield goes and stands as a witness for Velastus Hurlbut so he he falls a long way um but it, I I think it's also instructive to see that some of the doctrines that, that that were incredibly radical at the time like DNC 76 to them that caused people to leave the church my guess is you don't know anybody who told you the reason why they left the church was because of doctrine covenant section 76. I doubt that you've ever had anyone tell you that the reason why they had a faith crisis was, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if God provided a way for everyone to go to heaven, then I, there's no way this church is true. I mean that that's not uh, a a typical response. But uh, others, uh, you know, many others. We we don't know how many. They don't keep exact, but we have lots of anecdotal evidence that people could not accept this doctrine, and and it was something that. Set Latter-day Saint theology apart from other Christians from the very beginning. Now, Brigham Young did say that initially, but we want to hear what Brigham Young thinks later about it. I'm sure you do. Or if not, you've already stopped listening. Well, um, Brigham Young will say in 1860 in a sermon, he'll say, that is the greatest vision I ever knew delivered to any of the children of men. He went from not being able to accept it to saying that's the greatest vision ever delivered to any of the children of men. It incorporates more, he says, in a few pages, than any revelation I have any knowledge of. This is the gospel of salvation. This is our testimony, so says Joseph and Sidney. The heavens were open, and the Lord showed to them the inhabitants of the earth will be saved. The Methodist saved? Yes. Now, remember, he's a Methodist, so he's making that reference. Then there is the chance for those who have lived, too, and for those who now live. The gospel has come, truth and light and righteousness. He sent forth into the world. Those that will that receive it will be saved in the celestial kingdom. Those that don't receive it through ignorance, tradition, superstition, and the precepts of their fathers, many of them will get a good and glorious kingdom, and they will enjoy and receive more than ever entered into the heart of any man unless he had revelation. Brigham Young is teaching that, in fact, the celestial and terrestrial kingdoms are so great and so glorious that the Christians who go there, it'll actually be a greater heaven than they thought it was going to be. So they're actually receiving more than what they thought they were going to get. And Brigham Young goes on to say, my heart is comforted. Brigham loves the idea of this type of universal salvation. I know that when you say universal salvation, everyone gets really, they start to get tense. Like, no, no, we don't believe that. Well, Brigham's going to say, um, The Lord bestowed the holy priesthood upon the children of men by which and which alone can prepare people to enter into the celestial kingdoms of our God. How many gods there are, how many places there are, it's not for me to say, but I can say this. It is a source of much comfort, consolation, and gratification to behold the goodness and long-suffering and the kindness and the parental feeling of our Father and our God in preparing the way Providing the means to save the children of men, not you and I alone, not the Latter-day Saints alone, not those that had the privilege of the first principles of the celestial kingdom exclusively, but to save all. A universal salvation, a universal redemption. When we inquire who will be saved, all will be saved. As Jesus said, speaking to his 12 apostles, "Except the sons of perdition. If you inquire wherein they will be saved, how in a very few words I can tell you. They will be saved through the atonement and their good works according to the law that is given them. Will heathens be saved? Now remember, heathen is someone who does not believe in Jesus. Will heathens be saved? Yes. Will they that died without law be saved? Will they that never heard the name of the Savior be saved? Yes. Brigham Young went from doubting and having a hard time accepting this new theology that was taught in the vision to it becoming a core part of who he was, the merciful nature of God. At first, it struck him because his original idea was, no, hell's the most prominent part. Everyone goes to hell. I've always been taught hell is, is where almost everyone goes. If you don't accept Jesus, you go to hell. And later, after having the Spirit work on him in his life, instead... It's the thing he loves most about God. That he's so all-encompassing in his mercy that even those who don't choose to follow the path of righteousness will eventually go to heaven. A type of universal salvation. And only those who are sons of perdition will never have any uh, redemption from that, that suffering and that fire. This um, discussion can go on, and in fact, uh, we could we could share some more on it. But uh, I'd just like to close this, uh, at least this podcast now, and and add my own testimony to the fact that the revelation Joseph Smith received, the the vision, it really is one of the greatest and glorious teachings that we've we could possibly receive. Wilford Woodruff's right. Our standing in the Christian world is completely changed because of what we think about this afterlife. Not only what Joseph will expand upon, the celestial glory and what that means, the idea that you can become like God, but actually on the other end, on the other end, where we assume that people suffer the wrath of God forever, and God says no. His mercy is so all-encompassing that actually at some point, that suffering will have an end. And even those people will go to a kingdom of heaven that's so great and so glorious that you can't comprehend it unless the heavens are open to you. So I'm not encouraging anyone to go to the celestial kingdom. We all want exaltation. We want to be able to, to have that highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. But we also should understand how expansive the atonement of Jesus Christ is. And so I'll leave that with you. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you the next time. Thank you for listening to the
0: Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com.
1: Until next time.